1: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Haji Zadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel, and today we are honored to have uh, Professor uh, Philip Kitcher with us. Professor Philip Kitcher is a British philosopher who is John Dewey Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Columbia University. He specializes in the philosophy of science, the philosophy of biology, mathematics, literature, and more recently, pragmatism. And today he's here to talk with us about a great book called What's the Use of Philosophy, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Uh,
0: Philip, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Actually, the book has two titles. It has the title that you gave it, which is What's the Use of Philosophy? And it also has another title, What's the Use of Philosophy?
1: (laughs) I guess in the... The, the the version that I have like use philosophy is written in red, so that's how I guess you should be pronouncing it.
0: Yeah, it's it's designed to call attention to the yeah, fact that yeah. most people who ask that question ask it dismissively. Mm, you, you're absolutely right. I
1: had ordered this history of philosophy by Anthony Kenny. I guess yeah, the four four volumes, and my manager said, "Well, what's the use of philosophy? Science has done more for us." I I honestly didn't know how to respond because it was a dismissive question. I didn't engage in any conversation, but I guess this is a very timely question, especially after COVID-19, where there has been a lot of discussions about the use of philosophy or science, or if we should defund humanities or philosophy departments and just put more money into science because it has more use. But these are the questions we'll be talking about. Before we start, can you please just very briefly introduce yourself and tell us how the idea of this book uh came about
0: so i'm philip Kitcher. i i studied mathematics when i was undergraduate at cambridge and drifted sideways into studying the philosophy of science and then got a phd from princeton and uh, um, met my wife there and we've uh, i've been very lucky to teach together at the same university ever since That was a very long time ago, Um, and my interests keep evolving. So I started out being very interested in philosophy of mathematics, got interested in philosophy of biology, general questions about science. Then I got invited by the Library of Congress to uh, write some report for them about the Human Genome Project that was in the 1990s. That got me interested in issues about science within society, which inevitably brought me into ethical questions and questions of political philosophy, and on and on and on. Then I discovered pragmatism, got very interested in educational issues, and recently I've been worrying about this profession to which I've devoted well over 50 years at this stage, and I've been worrying about its status. So this is a question that's been occupying me, I would say, for 20 years now, and uh, it sort of erupted in an article that I wrote about 10, 12 years ago uh, called Philosophy Inside Out, Uh, and that was then sort of quite, uh, quite a lot of discussion took place about it, and that led me to write some further things and eventually to try to put it all together in a book to answer the title question in both senses. I want to address the person who thinks philosophy is useless, I also want to address the more sympathetic person who wants to know what exactly it is philosophy does for us. Mm. So the book is both a critical one and a positive one. It tries tries seriously to answer the question. Mm.
1: Yeah, and it does, when I when I read the question, it, it I read the book, it does feel uh, that way. That you're both critical, but you're also trying to engage in a constructive discussion with especially young researchers, which we'll talk about. That's the title of the last chapter, Letter to Some Young Philosophers. But let's talk about the first chapter, Philosophy Insider. As you mentioned, this was the title of an article, but you start this chapter with, with a story, with a tale of musicians. Can you tell us that... That analogy, yeah. And then, so, yeah, what are
0: you trying to highlight? So I think I think philosophers often, uh, when they when they actually introduce a problem, do well to start with a story. And my story is about a community. It's the community of musicians, and of course, as you know, as I think everybody really knows, even if they don't play a musical instrument, musicians, when they're in training, have to acquire technique. And so think of a violinist or a pianist or a trumpet player or a drum player. What they've got to learn is how to do things with the instrument. And there are all of these famous exercises that people have to go through to develop their technique. Anyway, this community in my story decides that it's had enough of the classical music pieces or the, the major music pieces in the genre that it's dealing with what it's going to do is hold competitions for musicians to show off their technique. And these completely take over what the musical community does. And as I tell the story, um, the community becomes more and more removed from any outside audience and ends up just playing music, making music for itself. And I use that there's a parallel to the situation of philosophy in the 20th, especially late 20th and 21st centuries, where it seems to me that the technicians have taken over and we've lost sight of what philosophy is for. And,
1: and that's the, the state of the Anglophone philosophy that uh, you describe in.
0: Yeah. I, I, describe, I describe English language philosophy, which seems to me um, most obviously guilty of this. I think I shouldn't comment on other forms of philosophy, although I do have some sort of interactions with an experience of the German tradition in critical theory, which uh, is deeply political and seems to me to be very far away from the, the criticisms that I launched towards Anglophone philosophy. And I should also say that in the time since I wrote that article there has been a movement towards uh, reinstating questions that are more sort of reaching out to broader audiences. So the article was written written probably around 2007, 2008, published around 2010 or 2011. And- I don't know how much influence it had. It would be stupid to to try to claim that, you know, I started a trend, but it certainly seems to me to be true that these days people are doing more of the sort of thing that uh, the article commended. So the article commended a number of movements within philosophy, uh, particularly attention to issues of class and race and gender. And I do think that The philosophical studies of race have grown by leaps and bounds in the last 30 years. I mean, what what philosophers have said has been very useful and very valuable. And I like to think that that trickled down into the consciousness, or perhaps up into the consciousness, of Barack Obama when he gave his sort of famous speech on race, because I I thought it was actually pitch perfect. I think he had it. Exactly right. To go on with the musical analogy,
1: and uh, in in this chapter, you you talk about core philosophy and applied philosophy. Can you define what you mean by by these two generalities and give us an example? Many people, many
0: people who defend technical philosophy as is, would identify particular areas of philosophy: metaphysics, philosophy of mind, philosophy of language. Um, perhaps the theory of knowledge, perhaps meta ethics. And they would say, these are the really core areas. Uh, and these this is the important stuff. And then there are these people who frankly aren't good enough to do core philosophy, which is very hard, who go off and slum it. And they, they write about things like race and gender and, uh, you know, uh, um, politics and Abortion and things like that, and you know, we don't. uh, It's it's very worthy stuff. They might say, you know, I'm deliberately putting on my sort of uh, patronizing voice. Very worthy stuff, but you know, it isn't core philosophy, and that's what we do. And we push back on something that's more important, more intellectually significant, and that that idea that there is this core. Uh, is something that comes up in many, many conversations about the uh, the role of philosophy and the state of contemporary philosophy, and so I borrowed it. Although at the end of the book, I actually want to get rid of the idea of a core. I don't want to say that there is sort of one particular part of philosophy that's prior to others. I want to say there are a number of very important philosophical ventures and none of them corresponds exactly to what the, the technically-minded philosophers think of as the the wonderful core areas on which they spend their time. Uh, what you said
1: about philosophy reminded me of what's going on in English departments as well, because we have also cultural studies coming out of English departments, and there are uh, those people who are defenders of literature. And th- that tradition, that philological tradition of reading the text, which is proper literature, let's say, and then they have those who study cultural studies, which is more applied like the idea of race or gender in movies or music. Uh, There are literature professors who are kind of dismissive of that cultural studies because they believe it took a lot of energy out of the English department. So that distinction sort of reminded me of that as well.
0: (laughs) I don't know whether that applies directly. I mean, I would be reluctant to say that, but I do think that there are some very interesting people writing about literature today who have connected literary works with contemporary problems and continue to combine them but there is also i think a great tradition not only the great philological tradition also the great interpretive tradition which makes works come alive for Mm. audiences and i mean i think of uh you know some of my I mean, I've learned an enormous amount uh, to, do, to, to just give you a couple of examples. I mean, I think I have um, I have a friend and colleague uh, who's a Shakespearean scholar whom I mentioned actually in my second chapter, who it seems to me has done remarkable work on making Shakespeare uh, and Shakespeare's relevance intelligible. That's one kind of work. Uh, there's another kind of work, again, about Shakespeare by a, a wonderful and very philosophical Oxford thinker. Uh, who died some years ago, A.D. Nuttall, called Shakespeare the Thinker. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And, it, you know, it gets inside um, the mind of a great poet and starts to help us understand things that we would not see. And there are philosophers, there are great philosophers who have written about literary works. I think of Stanley Cavell. um, uh, who wrote a wonderful essay on King Lear, and Martha Nussbaum, who has done, I think, some superb work on on philosophical themes in literature. And that's one of the things I like to do from time to time, too. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I mean is that there is this debate, and some people are quite dismissive of critical theory and, let's say, French theory in bringing it into literature, but some say, no, it's it's actually a way, as you mentioned, and you mentioned a lot of, uh and I was also reminded of Simon Critchley, who loves literature, who brings a lot of examples from literature into philosophy, who were able to like, to bring these works into contemporary times, bring it into our contemporary yeah. audience and get engaged with problems of today. Um, A question I have about that that sort of distinction between applied and core philosophy, which one, I, I know it might be a kind of a cheesy question, but anyhow, which one do you think is better equipped to deal with the issues of Today we have the rise of populism. We have gender issues discussions on television every day. So, which one do you think is better
0: equipped? Well, I don't think I don't think this is a question that has an answer because, first of all, I'm not as as I, I mentioned before, I'm not uh, a fan of the idea of philosophy having a core. I mean, there are works of philosophy that deal with more abstract and general issues. But those abstract and general issues are often linked by philosophers to very specific questions about the world in their own times. I mean, I think, for example, of Immanuel Kant. I mean, when you, know, when you look at the critique of pure reason, it's an amazingly rich theoretical system, and you think, what really does this have to do with you know uh, the problems that people face? And the, the, the answer is quite a lot. And that was recognized, the immense excitement that uh, the, when Kant's books were published in Germany. They were regarded in some circles as being subversive, and the students had to sort of, uh, you know, go underground to get them, as it were. And, uh, and Kant himself wrote a number of very powerful articles deriving ideas that were relevant to the controversies and situations of the time from his system. So I'm not against system in philosophy, but it must be system that, as it were, has a purpose, has a connection with something broader than itself. What I'm against is technique for the sake of technique, which is what my little story about the musicians is supposed to highlight. Uh, Let's go to chapter two. The title of the chapter is, so
1: who's your audience? And you talk about three types of audience in that chapter, philosophers, scientists, and the public. So can you tell us uh, why is philosophy of science important and then discuss these three types of audience as well?
0: Yeah. So I I think that the philosophy of science, which is a a part of philosophy to which I have devoted decades of my life and still do. I mean, I still write about issues in philosophy of science, although my take on these days is very different from what it was when I was younger. But philosophers of science have potentially three audiences. They could help philosophers see the philosophical import of different bits of science. Or they could venture in to science and try to help scientists sort through difficulties and confusions in contemporary science. Or they could do something completely different. They could try to understand science and its role in society and the contributions it makes and make that apparent for the general public. And I think philosophers of science have sometimes done excellent work in all of these veins. I think the philosophers of science have sometimes shown philosophers how ideas that had permeated philosophy were proved and uninformed, and they've used bits of science to try to suggest a better way of thinking about very general and abstract issues. I think they've done a lot, especially in recent years, to help the sciences sort through some of the difficulties and controversies. So while when I was young, I, I like many other people, I was part of a movement, philosophical movement, spent a fair bit of time in trying to um, you know, work my way through the implications of bits of biology for our thinking about human beings and their behaviour. This was in the context of the sociobiology controversy of the 1970s and 1980s, where people were saying, "Well, we, you know, biology shows us that we are by nature this way, and however much you want things to be otherwise, they can't be otherwise." And I I, I spent a lot of time writing about that and I think my work made some impact. Other philosophers have sorted through the debates about IQ and what exactly IQ measures and what what we should think about IQ and how we should think about IQ. And others have sorted through sort of very deep scientific controversies about the ways in which, for example, general relativity and special relativity and quantum mechanics all fit together. And you know, others have done work on um, the ways in which uh, various parts of biology um, have controversies that, that they face. And I mean, these are, st- I, I think, physics, biology, and psychology, and to some extent, economics these days are the main fields that philosophers of science have helped in this way. And I think this has been very profitable work. And then I think people have actually, philosophers have done some very good things to try to give the general public an account of the workings of science and the ways in which it fits into society. Uh, the latter has been especially my concern since I wrote the report for the on the Genome Project um, because that brought home to me the ways in which the social interactions between science and science policy and the broader values of the of a nation or human beings go forward. So recently, for example, I co-authored with a wonderful colleague, Evelyn Fox Keller, a book about the implications of climate change. And that was, you know, that was a kind of writing about science and, and and how it fits into human life. So, I mean, I think these are, are all three important ventures. And as I say in the book, I think philosophy of science, like the philosophy of art, actually, and, and the philosophy of literature, um, those fields, they sort of grapple with material, and they are much more related, to, tend to be much more related to questions that um, a of bro- a broad interest to people.
1: And, uh, well, you mentioned, I uh, didn't know that you had a book with uh, Professor Keller. I personally owe a lot to her when I was doing my PhD. I read a lot about the philosophy of science from a feminist perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because uh, I was doing some work on ecofeminism back then. I'll, I'll definitely check out the book and I'm more intrigued to to know more about that book. <laughs> um, in, in this book, I think it's in uh, it's second chapter around pages 20. you kind of give an overview of the history of philosophy of science can you briefly take us through that
0: section of the book I'll do it very briefly I mean philosophy of science sort of grew out of a movement in the in the early 1920s um I mean basically the logical positivists thought that the task of philosophy period was to give an organized account of how the the sciences actually had been developed and what they said it was it was a tidying up hygienic exercise to show that you know how uh, how physics they were primarily interested in physics and other sciences all fitted together many of them were very well trained in physics and mathematics and uh, and they concentrated their efforts there. All of that started to change when philosophers started to think more broadly about the sciences, both by thinking about more sciences, uh, in particular thinking about biology, and by thinking about the history of science. And there was this great movement in the 1950s and 1960s with people turning to the history of science as a laboratory for trying to understand the sciences, and that was a uh, Most famously done by Thomas Kuhn in his book *The Structure of Scientific Revolutions*, which has been an enormous inspiration for me. It's what actually got me into philosophy of science and into philosophy. Uh, Anyway, that was combined with a much more sort of uh, detailed engagement with particular sciences in the 1970s and 1980s, and that has now been joined by an an understanding of the way in which Science fits within various aspects of society. Uh, the role of science in democracy, the ways in which science has been shaped by prejudices of society, and the way in which science can contribute to debates about policy matters—I mean, all of that has been pursued much more um, carefully and much in you know in. The I think some very helpful ways in the last 20 to 30 years I, i'm delighted to see this trend and i and I hope more philosophers will engage in it that's taking out you know just taking science and trying to understand aspects of science as they relate to people's lives and to the structures of society and, and there is this um sentence on page 53
1: uh, and I would appreciate it if you could expand on that. You you mentioned that we need a much more ethically and politi- politically informed philosophy of science. What do you mean by more
0: ethically and politically informed? Well, I think there's been this tendency to say, look, you know, when the scientist goes into the lab in the morning, um, uh, something important changes because once a scientist is inside the lab, the priorities are very different. You know, it's all about finding the truth and nothing else matters. And I, I, like other people, I've wanted to break down that wall. I've wanted to see science as an enterprise within a broader human project and the science as an agent who contributes to human well being. I don't think of the scientist as, you know, somebody who subverts people's lives or as a secular priest. I think. Of the scientist as somebody who does work that in principle could advance the quality of human lives. And when you see it that way, you see the scientist as an ethical agent. And this idea of, you know, I go into the lab and I no longer have to worry about sort of the ethical issues of the day or what my research means or how it does anything for people at all. Not all that is relevant is pure truth. And I worship that. I mean, it's a crazy idea because right at the very beginning, you have to realize that the search for truth is not a search for all the truths. It's a search for very particular kinds of truth. And the questions you pose are the questions you think are important. And the questions that are important are the questions which, if answered, will do things that are of genuine value. Not just for you to satisfy your your own curiosity, but for everybody. And I think the greatest scientists have seen it that way. I mean, I just think of the ways in which the physicists reacted, for example, to the the, the, the uses of quantum theory and to to build weapons of great power. I mean, this is this is not. I think this should not be an alien thing. Um, so that's that sentence. the sentence has a lot behind it, and I, I understand why you wanted me to unpack it. But I'm actually writing about this in some detail uh, in my
1: some of my current work. And I guess you just highlighted why it's important for every scientist to know
0: uh, to know both the history and also the philosophy of science. Uh, I don't know. I don't know to what extent that's true. I think what. I think what would be good is if general if if people had a broader general education in science, if we weren't so insistent on teaching everybody to be a specialist, as if, you know, every child who comes into physics class, you know, would end up as a researcher in physics. That's that's a sort of unrealistic goal. I mean, there's there come moments in which some children, I think, think of themselves as as you know, not cut out to do science. But they do need a kind of scientific understanding. And that scientific understanding involves a form of literacy about the sciences. It involves maintaining the enthusiasm that most kids have for science. Little kids just love science. They love finding out about the natural, natural world. And it involves understanding something about scientific processes. So it does involve something, knowing something about history and the science and philosophy of science, but many other things besides. And I think what we should be thinking about is how to develop specialists who can advance science beyond the frontiers. But for those who are not going to be specialists, I think we need to think about making them Concerned with the scientific issues of the day throughout their lives, and really understanding how to how to absorb scientific information, and that that's a different kind of skill than than giving them long lists of amino acids to memorize or or teaching them how to solve problem, sort of toy problems about artificial sort of physical systems. I mean, we kill. We kill their interests by forcing them to do that year after year. And I I would like to see us change that. Um, Recognize that there are two, there are, well, there are a number of different constituencies whom we are trying to teach. Mm. Uh, Let me follow up with
1: another question. So, in the past three or four years with COVID 19, there has been a lot of talk about science, the use of science, the use of philosophy. We've seen the rise of conspiracy theories movements, such as anti-waxers. So h- how do you think philosophy
0: of science can benefit science itself? Well, I actually think it already has. I mean, I think philosophers of science have done a fair bit to try to analyze the ways in which these debates have been generated. Uh, they've, they've, they've dissected some of the sort of highly skeptical attitudes, I mean, uh, like Other people, I spent a fair bit of time. um, Actually, this was in the 1980s on um, the on trying to sort of show as clearly as possible what was wrong with creation science, Uh, and that sort of work seems to me extremely important. And philosophers have done a lot of it. They, I mean, they and they've started to do it with respect to um, the issues that arose in the pandemic. And I think this is very helpful. I mean, I think it would help even more if some of the people who do this work were able to formulate their ideas clearly and excessively enough so that they could be widely appreciated. If there were, I mean, I don't know of, you know, of, of an article that exposes where the, for a general public, where the anti-vaxxer movement came from but scholars historians and philosophers of science have done fabulous work on this and i would love to see that sort of widely appreciated and understood
1: and um you talk about six maladies and i and i love the way you had kind of sorted them out six maladies that you identified with philosophy uh, commitment to clarity, excessive formalism, intuition, a priori, ideas from other fields, and outdated questions. Now, I don't know
0: if we have time or uh, to talk about all me this. Let me, just, let me uh, just say a little something. Yeah. I, that chapter emerged because I really felt that after the first two chapters, I had to give something much more precise, a diagnosis, not just simply point to pathologies within philosophy, but to say what made them pathological. So what is what is I, what do I think has gone wrong with uh, the technical sort of concentration and the professionalisation philosophy, where well, you start off with one very important virtue, we want to be absolutely clear about things. Clarity is a wonderful philosophical virtue, but it that goes into a sort of hypertrophic mode. It's like sort of. Um, It's like somebody's finger that grows enormously long, right? Uh, uh, And why does it do that? Because philosophers have sort of started to think that clarity has to give you a criterion for us answering any possible situation. And that strikes me as a myth. What we need to be able to do is to be clear enough in our concepts to handle the situations that matter to us, not to deal with abstract possibilities that never occur in in, in real life. And much philosophy, if you start reading professional articles about incredibly fanciful examples, You know, would this count as knowledge or democracy or justice or whatever you know, if it were to occur? So in doing that, they, they recognize the, that sometimes using a formal mathematical style language may be very helpful, but they drive this to extremes and try to make everything formalized. And when they're dealing with these cases, which they're trying to clarify, they, are, they make up artificial examples and then say, our intuition about this example is such and such. So you, everybody, pretty much everybody uh, who reads about philosophy knows about the trolley problem, right? You've got a, a runaway trolley; it's heading down a track. There's a guy on the track, track, strapped to it. You have the possibility of diverting the the train, the trolley, so that it goes on. Uh, sorry, there are five people on the track. You have the the problem, the possibility of diverting it so it goes onto a track, but there's one person bound on that track. So. So there you are and say, um, you know, what's your intuition about this? Well, I've tried this out on classes of students and they always shift uneasily, except for those who have, you know, sort of uh, advanced views about what philosophical system they want. Um, So the students who are sort of naive and thinking just don't know what to say. And they don't know what to say because the example is too remote from the, the kinds of choices they're used to making. It's not good for the kinds of uh, cognitive apparatus we've evolved uh, biologically and socially to have. The world is too small and too simplified. I mean, you know, my students tell me again and again. I know. I mean, what would I do if I were in that situation? Well, I'd look around for some other way to get out of the problem to save everybody, and that's that's of course a very you know. Natural response. And The philosopher says, No, no, you know for certain that that's impossible. But how can I know for certain that that's impossible? I mean, what would you tell me that? You know, if, so there's a kind of craziness that goes on here, I think. This is not to say that philosophy can't use telling examples. I think it often does. But they have to be meshed with the life that we live, not sort of abstracted right. away. So Philosophers claim to be able to know things um, a priori on the basis of this kind of intuition. That seems to be a myth. They also claim sometimes just that certain kinds of principles are beyond questioning, which seems to me dogmatism by another name. But some some philosophers get inspired by this to go off and try to all on the findings of other disciplines. And some people do this very well. They, they know a lot of physics, they know a lot of mathematics, they know a lot of economics, they know a lot of such, something or other, um, they know a lot about art. Um, but all too often, the other discipline isn't taken seriously enough. So they stop learning too soon. And then finally, some philosophers content themselves with the idea that. You know there are these old questions, these timeless questions that permeate philosophy. and We have to keep answering them. I think there's something to that, but I think the trouble is they arise in new forms in different times, and you have to pay attention to the kind of questions that are urgent for the times. Uh, when I was thinking about this book, I read a marvelous, a marvelous philosophical discussion with a philosopher who might never. Uh, read before, who was writing about the difficulties, the the the, the philosophical questions that arise when people who have come from relatively humble origins get the opportunity to rise into a different social sphere. So what she was concerned about was the ways, the, the questions of of how to how ethically to negotiate. This kind of difference between the world in which somebody comes to live and the world in which they started—it's a wonderful question, and uh, it was handled extremely, extreme with great sensitivity in the book. Um, that was an example of somebody seeing how to pose a genuine and deep ethical question that arises in a different social context, because it's all over the place. There are people who uh, you know, first first generation to go to college or first generation to to go into a particular uh very sort of exciting and interesting and rewarding area. And the question is how they think about themselves in relation to where they come from. I mean this this is meaningful for me since I came from well humble origins. I have no I, I no nobody in my family had been university my parents left school at 12 and 14. i mean all of this is i mean this is a phenomenon that is possible today and here was a philosopher coming along and saying so there's there is a kind of ethical question that that arises for us that hasn't arisen
1: before Yeah, it's a fascinating example i'm keen to know the name of the author and the article because it sort of applies to me as well and yeah Yeah, I'll ask. It's in the book.
0: It's in the book. It's in the last chapter of the book, I think. I think it's in the last (laughs) chapter of the book.
1: Yeah. Uh, The the last chapter of the book uh, is called Letter to Some Young Philosophers. It's a very, very interesting chapter. It's more like a dialogue sometimes. Can you talk about that one and then also tell us the young philosophers? Let me
0: just say before we get to that, what goes on in the chapter before, because the chapter, the fourth chapter, the one that follows the pathology, is really an attempt to say what philosophy can do for everybody, which is to sort out our confusions, help us make sense of ourselves and the world in which we live. And that, I think, is what draws many people into philosophy. They want to engage in that kind of enterprise. They want to try to understand how to put together the various aspects of lives. They want to form a kind of synthetic understanding of the world in which they live, Their place in it. Now, when I have given talks on these themes, it's been very interesting because over a period of 10 to 12 years, I have sometimes talked about this material. And, you know, philosophical discussions are notoriously cutthroat. But very often, what's happened is that I've heard from my audiences an enormous Amount of sympathy for what I'm saying, you know, the people have raised their questions and said, "So, I'm really sympathetic to what you said. This is you've you've said why you've told me why I went into philosophy, reminded me of that. But it's so far from the professional discipline in which I am being trained, have recently been trained, uh, I'm now struggling to survive, etc., etc., etc." Um. So my my last chapter is called Letter to Some Young Philosophers. And it's an attempt to write to them about the problem they raise again and again. How do I handle the demands of professionalization and at the same time honor the motives that drove me to philosophy in the first place? It seems that there are the questions that really matter to me. The questions I wanted to address are not being addressed by the people who have highest standing in my profession. So professionalism is dragging me one way, and my intellectual interests, my, my some in some cases, my very strong intellectual interests are pulling me in another. And I explicitly uh, riffed on a, um, on a title from Rilke. Rilke wrote Letters to a Young Poet well, I make the philosophers plural, and um, <laughs> you know. Uh, okay, so um, yeah. so I try to I try to uh, uh, sort of answer these questions because I think it's a very very important uh, sentiment that they are actually voicing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I wish I had a really satisfactory answer to it. I propose a number of ways of trying to uh, integrate these things. I point to some models for integrating. um, But I don't think I've said anything like the last word. But I hope that the trend that I have seen happening of philosophers becoming more outward-looking in breaking down the barriers that cut off philosophy departments the last 40 years, really, from... you know many other disciplines. Philosophy. I mean, the humanities are, are held in low regard, and philosophy is completely cut off from its sort of fellow humanities. Philosophers have got a reputation for not being able to talk to anybody. That's not true. I mean, there are many philosophers in the world today who can talk to other people. You mentioned Simon Critchley, for example, but there are many, many others. I mean, there are well, one of the most influential philosophers, if not the most influential English language philosopher in the world today is Martha Nussbaum, who has an enormous audience Uh, and has, I think, written works that have, um, you know, really illuminated uh, the thinking and the lives of many, many people. Um, So it's not impossible to do this. It's just been professionally undervalued for a very long time. That's a bad thing. The the young philosophers realize this, and they want to know how to balance the demands that are issued to them by the profession with their wish to do this kind of thing. So that's what the last chapter is all about. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, these are difficult
1: uh, questions, and there might not be a final answer to that. But I have another question as well, more recent I mean, in general, but especially more recently after COVID-19 there has been this push by a lot of policy makers and uh, policymakers and politicians to encourage more students to study science because it's productive, it, it it contributes something to the economy and unfortunately it has come at the cost of defunding humanities. I live in Australia, this is happening in Australia and also in the United States, England, many parts of the world. Do you think this is
0: doing any service to science? No, I think it's bad all around. Um, it seems to me that the pressure to push young people into so-called STEM subjects arises not from a consideration of their individual propensities. We're not thinking about sort of drawing out what will satisfy, what will, um, what will enrich the life of an individual. We're thinking about students as cogs in a machine to serve the productive purposes of the nation. I mean, in part, I think this comes from a completely screwed-up economic system, which has, you know, abandoned largely abandoned the idea of public goods. That has seen everything in terms of competitive interactions. Has seen markets as just things that produce consumer goods at the cheapest possible price. So in my book, The Main Enterprise of the World, Rethinking Education, I propose to look at the other way around, to think about the education of the student first and to think about the economic arrangements as to, to be designed, as it were, to accommodate what good education and good development in human life would turn out to be. Now, why don't I think it's good for science? Because I think it turns off young people who might take a passionate interest in science at some late, later stage of their life, who are forced to study particular sciences and compete in a particular way at a particular stage of their lives. I think it doesn't teach them what they need to support science, which is that kind of scientific literacy I was mentioning earlier. It fuels attitudes of alienation towards science, which lead to these skeptical movements. And it doesn't respect the kinds of creativity and the kinds of contributions that the humanities make. So, sometimes when I'm giving talks about the sciences and the arts, after I try to show that, in fact, um, the arts, too, contribute to human well-being. I ask the audience, you know, so think about your own life and think about the ways in which you've developed. Which has been more important to you? The things that you've gotten out of your interactions with? arts and literature and history, all the things you've gotten out of your interactions with the um, the natural sciences. Think about the person you are and how you've become that person. Think about your self-understanding. Think about the ways in which your life has been shaped. And what what, what I get is typically a fairly substantial majority who will say, actually, it's the arts. It's the arts and humanities that are, that are helped me see who I wanted to be and have helped me make my life the way it is, and the exceptions tend to be people who are studying science, who are already committed to the sciences. And um, I, I think what we've failed to, to appreciate is the fact that the important thing here is to nourish intellectual and emotional life, and creativity. And nourishing that is not achieved by trying to force people into a mold that for many of them produces resentment and alienation. So I think it's bad all around. Um, (laughs) But the argument for this takes me about 400 pages. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, I actually did not know about this book. It's a good book. To, to follow up, both for me and also our listeners, The Main Enterprise of the World, Rethinking Education, which was published in 2021 by Oxford. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Uh, Professor Philip Kitcher, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Fascinating ideas you talked about, and I encourage our listeners to check the book, The Philosophy of Science. It's a very uh, short and easy book to read, and uh, it poses a lot of questions, um, and it gives us a lot to to
0: to to think about and engage with. Well thank you very much. I enjoyed I enjoyed the interview. I enjoyed your questions. And I hope I've provided something towards answering some of them. You certainly have.